I'm going to read a number of verses of this passage here. And it came to pass after the year was expired at the time when kings go forth to battle that David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel. And they destroyed the children of Ammon and besieged Rabbah. But David tarried still at Jerusalem. And it came to pass in an evening tide that David arose from off his bed and walked upon the roof of the king's house. And, upon the, and from the roof he saw a woman washing herself, and the woman was very beautiful to look upon. And David sent and inquired after the woman. And one said, Is not this Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? And David sent messengers and took her. And she came in unto him, and he lay with her. For she was purified from her, from her uncleanness, and she returned unto her house. And the woman, that is Bathsheba, conceived and sent and told David and said, I am with child. David sent to Joab, saying, Send me Uriah the Hittite. Joab sent Uriah to David. And when Uriah was coming to him, David demanded of him how Joab did, how the people did, and how the war prospered. David said to Uriah, Go down to thy house and wash thy feet. And Uriah departed out of the king's house, and there followed him a mess of meat from the king. But Uriah slept at the door of the king's house with all the servants of his lord, and went not down to his house. When they had told David, saying, Uriah went not down unto his house, David said unto Uriah, Camest thou not from thy journey? Why then didst thou not thou go down to thine house? And Uriah said unto David, The ark and Israel and Judah abide in tents, and my lord Joab and the servants of my lord are encamped in the open fields. Shall I then go into mine house to eat and to drink and to lie with my wife? As thou livest and as thy soul liveth, I will not do this thing. David said to Uriah, Tarry here today also, and tomorrow I will let thee depart. So Uriah abode in Jerusalem that day and the morrow. When David had called him, and he did, he did eat and drink before him, and he made him drunk, and at even he went out to lie in his bed and with the servants of his Lord, but went not down to his house. And it came to pass in the morning that David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it by the hand of Uriah. And he wrote in the letter saying, Set ye Uriah in the forefront of the hottest battle, and retire ye from him that he may be smitten and die. And it came to pass, when Joab observed the city, that he assigned Uriah unto a place where he knew that valiant men were. And the men of the city went out and fought with Joab. There fell some of the people of the servants of David, and Uriah the Hittite died also. This morning I'd like to preach on this subject, three motivations for living right. Three motivations for living right before God. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the blessing of being able to gather together. I have come to this time now, Lord, having prepared and prayed and sought your face. But Lord, this is your time for you to take control and speak to the hearts of people. I can only speak with my voice and let it fall on the ears of the people here, but it's only you that can speak to the heart. I pray that every person would be open Listen, be attentive to that which you have for them. Lord, if there's any secret sin here today, anyone that is not living the way that they ought to, I pray that they would confess their sin 
and get right with you. I pray this all in Jesus' precious name. Amen. It is said that decisions determine destiny. Decisions determine destiny. Your life tomorrow will actually be the direct result of the decisions that you make today. It's estimated that we make approximately 35,000 decisions per day. There will be consequences for all of those decisions that we make, some small consequences, some large consequences. And these consequences may not be immediate, but they are inevitable. In fact, if you choose to spend more money that you take in, eventually you'll go bankrupt. If you choose not to work when you should be working, you'll find yourself unemployed. If you choose to eat too much, you'll gain too much weight. If you choose to neglect your spouse, it may cost you your marriage. And you know, no greater way do we see the results of the decisions that we make than in the spiritual realm and how they have eternal consequences. When our choices are sinful, there will be severe consequences. You say, preacher, how so? Does that really mean that God really follows through with the consequences of our actions? Well, let me just kind of walk through a little bit of Scripture and ask you what you think of these biblical characters. How about Adam and Eve when they found out that God really meant business when he said not to partake of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? Do you think God was serious about that? I do. What about Jacob? Ask Jacob what he thought about all the fun of tricking people and deceiving people until there came a point when he met somebody who probably was equally as conniving as him. Just ask Achan in Joshua chapter 6 and 7, who found out that God was very serious when he said that those Israelites were not to take of the spoils of Jericho. And in our passage here today, we ought to ask David, what did David think about and what did David face when he found out what it was like to take another man's wife? Allow me just a few moments to rehearse this story with you. And after I do that, I'd like to draw out three principles that will help us in living right before God. This story is revolved around two main characters David and Uriah. Now, most of us are familiar with David. David is that young man that was taken from the sheepfold, a a young boy of uh, uh, seven other siblings that just tended sheep and really had no significance as far as his brothers, but God had something for him. God drew this young man, and he went through so many trials as as God had had placed a, a, a calling on his life. David was brought to the palace, and seven years he reigned over Israel in a scattered way there in Hebron, and then all of Israel came together, and he established his reign there in Jerusalem. And God had raised up David to be the greatest king at that point. We all know David, and we know the decision that he made here, but Uriah is the other main character. Who was this man, Uriah? Well, Uriah, we know, was married to Bathsheba. That's number one. Number two, the Bible identifies him as a Hittite. 
The Hittites were one of the Canaanite countries that were there in that land of where Israel had come in out of Egypt to that promised land. And Uriah was a Hittite who had converted, if you will, to the land of Israel and become an Israelite. But he was also one of David's mighty men. You know, in many countries, there are elite fighters or warriors who are called upon to accomplish special assignments or missions that regular soldiers cannot do. In the United States, we have special groups trained for these special purposes. Some of you might be familiar with the Rangers, the Green Berets, the Navy SEALs. These are some of the special forces that our military has. In fact, it was a number of years ago, the Navy SEALs were sent to capture or kill Osama bin Laden. The men in these units are the best of the best. They are incredibly skilled at uh, doing the assignments that have been given to them, and they have physical and psychological capacity to endure extreme situations. This was the type of man Uriah was. There were 30-plus men that were part of this elite group that David had established. Uriah is one of them. And while Uriah and the Israelites and their army are out fighting, David did something uncharacteristic at that time. He stayed behind. Normally, David as a king would go out and lead his men. Yes, he had a general. Yes, he had other important men that would help lead. But the king would always go forth. And at this juncture, David decided to take ease and to stay back. And while he was there and walking out on the roof, he saw down below at one of the houses nearby a lady by the name of Bathsheba, and he wanted her for himself. Well, upon discovering that she had conceived during this encounter of them getting together, David devised a plan to bring Uriah home from the battle, return him to his wife, so that way the baby would believed, be believed to be Uriah's. Well, here's Uriah summoned back home. He obediently leaves the battlefield and reports to David in Jerusalem, and he gave an account of how the war was progressing. David did something. He sent Uriah home to his wife with a personal gift. The Bible talks about a mess of meat. Brings, brings him home and allows him to go back. But Uriah felt such loyalty to his soldiers. He felt such loyalty to the king that he felt that while his soldiers were out fighting, he could not be home in the comfort there with his wife. And so he slept outside the king's palace on a hard floor. The next day, David had heard that Uriah had not gone to his house and his plan was not working. And so David enticed Uriah to get drunk and hoping that the drunkenness would weaken Uriah's sense of morals. However, as 2 Samuel chapter 11 verse 13 tells us, even in his drunkenness, Uriah went not down to his house. His commitment to what he considered to be the right thing was in stark contrast to David's willingness to engage in sin even without any mitigating circumstances. David saw that his plan was not working. 
So he resolved to have Uriah killed in battle so then he could marry Bathsheba and make the pregnancy look legitimate. David wrote instructions for the army and commander, and he told Joab, he says, I want you to make sure that you place Uriah in the forefront of the hottest battle and then retire from him that he may be smitten and die. That's verse 15. The fact that David needed the army to be commanded to draw from Uriah shows how strong and an accomplished warrior that Uriah must have been to have to be abandoned in the hardest fighting in order to ensure his death. Ironically, David entrusted Uriah with the letter that would command his death. Imagine that. Uriah was so trustworthy and such an honest man that he carried the letter of his own death sentence, and yet he brought it unopened to his commander, Joab. Uriah then obediently and valiantly followed his commander's orders. The Bible tells us in the last verse that we read that he died in battle. David then completed his plan and he married Bathsheba. We didn't read that passage, but the remaining part of chapter 11 tells us here. In fact, the last verse gives us a very somber note of this story. Notice what it says here in verse number 27, the last thing. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. Now look right up here for just a moment. How many times in your life has there been something that you knew in your heart that you did that displeased the Lord? Every hand, I'm sure, should go up and would go up if I asked for it. But I know that here in this story that what David had done, not just one sin, but compounded upon another and another, multiple sins against God, and what David had done truly displeased the Lord. God, in the next chapter, sends his prophet, his man, Nathan, to confront David. Imagine having to go before David to tell him that he has sinned the king. This is the man that could have his life taken. And yet David is confronted by Nathan and Nathan puts together this illustration of a poor man and a rich man in a city. And the poor man had one little lamb that he treated it like it was his daughter in his home. This rich man that was abundant in all sorts of goods and all sorts of sheep had a traveling friend come by and he went to that poor man and took away his one lamb and slaughtered it for feeding of his guest. David was so outraged in hearing that story. He stood up and he says, I want that man to be taken care of. And boy, Nathan looked at David and I almost picture this finger pointing at him, and he said, David, thou art the man. You're the one who has taken away from an innocent man. You're the one who has stolen and has displeased God. God, through his prophet, begins to share here how David's household is going to be ravished by the consequences 
of his own actions. It's clear to me today in this story that there is one man who truly had a desire to please God, please his king, was faithful to God, was faithful to his wife, was faithful to his king. There was one man here today who made some wrong and sinful decisions. But the details of this story now laid out, let me share with you what I believe are three motivations that you and I ought to consider to live holy, pure lives before God. Number one, first reason to live right is because of grace. Because of grace. I want you to note Uriah's name as he is known. Would you look here at chapter 11, verse number 3? The Bible says, the daughter at the end here, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite. Notice verse number 6. Again, it identifies him as Uriah the Hittite. Look at verse number 21 at the end. Uriah the Hittite. Verse number 24, Uriah the Hittite. In chapter 12, verses 9 and 10, again, it gives it as Uriah the Hittite. How was Uriah known? As formerly being a Hittite. Uriah was not a natural Israelite, but came to be known as an integral part of David's army and fighting for the country of Israel. In fact, the name Uriah is actually of Hebrew origin. It means Yahweh is my light, or other words, Jehovah or God is my light. I believe that when Uriah came into the country of Israel and wanted to no longer identify as a Hittite, but wanted to identify as a Hebrew, he changed his name to Uriah and said, that's my God, and I serve him. Now, while there's been a lot of conjecture of Uriah's true identity and how he came to be known of as an Israelite and among the top 30, I personally believe that Uriah converted to become an Israelite and took Jehovah as his God. No wonder that Uriah stands out in this story with such integrity. And Uriah stands out to us as a man who decided to serve God and live right because of the grace that was extended to him to not only be an Israelite, but to be included among David's top 30 elite soldiers. I can picture every day a Uriah as he's putting on his armor, as he's getting prepared for battle, as he maybe sees the king come and address the soldiers. Uriah begins to well up in his spirit and is excited to be able to serve his king and serve his God who is his light. Could I not say to you today that the same should be considered of us as born-again Christians? We who are saved today have been shown such amazing grace. What is grace What is the grace that God has showered upon us as his believers? I love the way A.W. Tozer once put it. He said, grace is the good pleasure of God that inclines him to bestow benefits upon the undeserving. 
its use to us sinful men is to save us and make us sit together in heavenly places to demonstrate to the ages the exceeding riches of God's kindness to us in Christ Jesus. How many of you are here to save today? Would you give a hearty amen? Amen. I want to say something to you that God has demonstrated his grace to you. God has shown such wonderful favor and kindness in allowing you today to be saved. Our lives before being saved and coming to know Christ were so wrapped up in ourselves We were so wrapped up in rebellion and in sinful activity, yet God sought us out. And by his wonderful and amazing grace, he saved us out of this sinful world and placed us in his family. I love the way Ephesians 2, 4 puts it, but God, who is rich in mercy... For his great love wherewith he saved us, even when we were dead in sins, hath quickened us. That is, hath made us alive together with Christ. And I love this. In parentheses, he says, in case you forget, by grace ye are saved. And raised us up together and made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Paul also says in Romans chapter 5, verses 6 through 8, For when we were yet without strength, in due time Christ died for the ungodly. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die, yet peradventure for a good man some would even dare to die. But, but, listen to this, God commendeth, that is he demonstrated, he shows his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Isn't it wonderful to know that God has demonstrated his goodness, his grace, his mercy to you? Some of you say today, well, preacher, look, you know, when I got saved, I I was six years old. I was seven years old. I wasn't really that bad of a sinner. I mean, the biggest things I did was stole some cookies out of the cookie jar. I mean, I lied to my mom about doing my homework. Uh, I didn't commit a lot of big sins. I want to tell you something. Whether you were saved at five years old or you were just saved last week at 50 years old, God's grace is evident in every salvation. Because not only has God saved you from an eternity in hell, but God has saved you to show forth the glories of God for all to see. I'm telling you, the grace of God is wonderful. And one of the motivations to live this Christian life and to be right with God and to stay right with him is that wonderful grace that has been bestowed upon us. Boy, I tell you, as I think about what God has done in my life, as I think about how God brought me, and I know my testimony, I know the way that I was before I was saved. I know how I lived in rebellion and sinned against God and had no care for God, and yet God saved me. Every day as I get up, I say that the temptations come my way like anybody else. The temptations and, 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 and the, the situations arise to walk away from God. But I'm always reminded of his grace in my life. And Uriah was a true example of the living right because of the very grace of God. My friend, you have been saved from the pit of hell You've been saved and brought out of that miry clay, as the psalmist said, and he set your feet upon a rock. God saved you. 
I love the story about a lady by the name of Elizabeth Kickley. She was a slave in Missouri before the Civil War. Her greatest desire was to purchase her freedom for herself and her son. Her husband had been taken away years back. Her owner agreed that if she could come up with the sum of $1,200, she would gain her freedom. Well, Keckley worked as a seamstress and came up with a plan to go to New York City to raise the money, but her owner feared that if she went up there, she'd never return. Well, some people in the area of uh, St. Louis, Missouri, heard about all of this, and they contributed the money that she needed, and Elizabeth Keckley was able to pray, pay the price to her owner and receive the freedom for herself and her son, and she went to Washington, D.C., and out of all places in Washington, D.C., she came to know the president's wife, Mary Lincoln. And it was there in the White House that she became a seamstress for Mary Lincoln. She went from the slave house to the White House. Can I say greater than you and I going to the White House is you and I being saved and someday knowing that we're going to God's house. God saved you, my friend, and he's shown you his grace. That ought to be a motivation for living right. But notice second motivation for living right, not only because of grace, but notice number two, because of grief, grief. Would you think with me for just a moment? I don't know about you, but I like to use my imagination when I read some of the scriptures. I like to kind of read between the lines. Now, I don't, I don't make my theology of what's between the lines, but I like to use my imagination in these stories. Imagine with me for just a moment of what Uriah never knew about. I don't think Uriah ever knew of David's betrayal. I don't think Uriah ever knew of Bathsheba's unfaithfulness. This man, Uriah the Hittite, was faithful to his king and went to the last battle excited to fight for David, his king. But now imagine on the other side for just a moment the reaction of David, the reaction of Bathsheba, Use your creative mind to picture for just a moment Joab returning from that battle. Imagine him being given permission to see the king, and here he is carrying something, and it happens to be the sword of Uriah. David, sitting on his throne, looks down. He says, what's that? Oh, sir, I just thought you'd like to see this. This is Uriah's sword. Imagine now as that sword is laid down maybe on a table right before David, David starts thinking to himself of what he had done to actually have the battle withdrawn from Uriah and Uriah's life is taken and now all that's left is a sword. Imagine probably some hours later, one of the other soldiers who had gone through and had taken some of the belongings of Uriah as he lay there uh, dead and there's a knock at the door of Bathsheba's house. The door gets open. Bathsheba sees a man standing there and he's carrying a bunch of belongings of Uriah. And of the things that are there is a ring of Uriah's. Imagine now as Bathsheba looks at that wedding ring and she begins to think herself 
of the evil deed that she had done and being unfaithful not only to her God but to her husband. You know, the Bible has much to say about the consequences of our actions and our sin. Numbers 32, 23, be sure your sin will find you out. Galatians 6, 7, be not deceived, God is not mocked. For whatsoever a man soweth, that shall he also reap. Proverbs 29, verse 6, in the transgression of an evil man, there is a snare. Romans 6, 23, for the wages of sin is death. And my friend, I want to say something to you today, and I want you to hear me. If you have tuned me out, I want you to just come back into focus right now. I earnestly believe that most Christians do not know how powerful sin is. We underestimate its power, its grip, and its hold on us. And I submit to you today that far too many of us have been fooled, we've been brainwashed, we've been uh, lied to by the devil, and the chain of that, those sinful actions are wrapped around our neck and are putting a chokehold on us. Somebody once said, sin will take you farther than you want to go, keep you longer than you want to stay, and cost you more than you want to pay. I remember a number of years ago, in fact, it was a long time ago, I was just in my late elementary years. My next door neighbor, Kenny, we were best of friends growing up. And we started coming out of little childhood, little activities, and we started playing a lot of basketball. But neither one of us had our own basketball net. We had to find any way that we could to make our own basketball net until one day, Kenny's stepfather in the backyard put up a wonderful basketball hoop. And we played for hours on that basketball hoop. We enjoyed it. One day, Kenny came to me and he said, uh, John, he said, I'm going to be gone for a few days. He said, but feel free. He said, my mom and stepdad said, it's okay for you to use the basketball net. And boy, I was excited. I didn't care. I didn't have anybody else to play with. I didn't even invite my brothers. I just went and I shot hoops all day. But I got the novel idea that I would try to do some dunking of the basketball. I had watched the basketball games, and I had watched those big, burly basketball players dunk a basketball, and I thought, man, I can do that. But I was short, and I really, you know, shorter than, definitely than the net, couldn't jump that high. So I got something that I could jump on and go up and dunk the basketball. And boy, I did that, and I thought, man, I am athletic. I'm like Michael Jordan, you know, just flying through the air. But one of those times that I went up and I jumped and I grabbed the rim and I thought I would just hang on it and all of a sudden it let go and I broke the rim. You know what the first thing I did was? I looked at my neighbor's house at the window because his mother used to watch us all the time and I looked to see if she was looking. Nothing in the window. I said, I know what I'm going to do. I'm going to just take this net. I'm going to lay it there, and I'm going to go back to my house, and I'm going to pretend that I wasn't even around. In fact, my neighbor's mother had asked me. She saw me one day out in the yard, and she said, John, and boy, I did not want to hear my name called by her. 
She said, what happened to the rim? And I said, Mrs. Raincourt, I, I don't know what happened to it. I lied to her. And then all of a sudden, all hell broke loose when she found out that I had done it. But I tell you, I did everything I could to avoid her. And every night that I laid in bed, I knew that I had done wrong and I had to make it right. You know, that's a simple little story of something that probably all of us could tell of something that we did wrong and consequences of our actions. But I'm here to tell you that as a pastor for almost 30 years, as I've sat in my office and I have counseled with people, I can tell you there are horrendous stories that people have shared. There are things that people begin to open up in my office and begin to tell me of actions and sinful things that they have done, and they begin to share the consequences of all these actions, and they cry, and they weep, and they mourn, because with every sin, there are actions and reactions that come with it. And I want to tell you today that what Uriah faced was being able to live with a free and pure conscience before God, knowing that he lived right. But David, for the rest of his life, faced the consequences of his actions. I wish I had time to go through this. I encourage you to take Psalm 38 and read the first 10 verses of that chapter. We don't know why David wrote this psalm, but for whatever reason, David is sharing about the mourning and the sorrow that he's going through because of his sinful actions. And everything that he has done has now come upon him. And he grieves before the Lord. You read the remaining part of 2 Samuel and you'll see some awful things that happened to David. This child with whom Bathsheba was pregnant died. Praise God. God in his mercy allowed them, he and Bathsheba, to have another child who became the next king. That was Solomon. And Solomon was used of God. But that child, initially, that first child, had died. Later on in 2 Samuel, we'll read about another son rapes uh, David's daughter. There's another son that rebels against him, attempting to overtake the throne. And on and on and on and on, there are consequences of David's sin. And I want to just say to you today, and I want to shout it as loud as I can from this pulpit, live for Jesus. Because it's not worth living for this world and dealing with all the grief that comes with it. Lastly, I share with you this. We ought to live right, not only because of grace, because of grief, but because of God. Again, I mentioned earlier, Uriah's full name is mentioned a couple of times in chapter 12, verses 9 and 10. And reading that, those verses, it almost seems you can kind of give a casual reading and think that God's just throwing out in David's face, oh yes, Uriah the Hittite lived right, but you didn't. I want to tell you something here today. God is not capricious, nor does he display such erratic behavior. 
That's what the devil does when we do wrong. The devil always likes to throw things in our face. The devil likes us to see how wicked and awful that we are. But I'm reminding you here today that one of the reasons that we ought to live right is what God is sharing here is that God sees everything. No one else may have known how Uriah lived right and pure before God, but God did. And there may have been a lot of people initially that didn't know about David's sin until it came out into the light, but God knew. Oh, I'm always reminded of Hebrews 4, 13. Neither is there any creature that is not manifest in his sight, but all things are naked and open under the eyes of him with whom we have to do. Proverbs 15, 3, the eyes of the Lord are in every place, beholding the evil and the good. Jeremiah 16, 17, God says, for mine eyes are upon all their ways. Jeremiah 23, 24, can any hide himself in secret places that I shall not see him? Asked, saith the Lord. And yet while we tend to focus on the evil that God does and can see, I want to remind you that God does see all the good. Second Chronicles 69, For the eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth to show himself strong on the behalf of them whose heart is perfect before God. You know, it's amazing to me. Uriah had such a relationship with God that God saw that man who lived upright was faithful to his wife was faithful to his king, was faithful to the God, the one that he wanted to show is a light in his life. God saw all of that good of Uriah. And how wonderful it is to read in Matthew chapter 1, verse number 6, that just as a side note, God mentions Uriah's name in the genealogy of Jesus. Isn't that wonderful? I want to tell you something. God sees what you're doing. Oh, God sees the evil and will punish, but God also sees the the good and will bless. And I must say to you today, the beauty of living right is God and his presence. His presence. You know, I can tell you a reoccurring theme of people who aren't living right. They're questioning God's reality. They're questioning God's presence. They're questioning God's love. They're questioning God's goodness. And because their life is so given to this world and and all of its activities, they're involved in everything and all of their worship is for the things of this world, all of their attention and admiration, and God is not a part of their life. And it ought to be that we ought to consider the very presence of God. And when you back away from God and you get into sin, no wonder David said in Psalm 51, which was a psalm of confession based on his sin with Bathsheba, he says, cast not your presence from me. Remove not from me the joy of thy salvation. David wasn't saying that he wasn't saved any longer, but what did he lose? the recognition of God's presence in his life, the joy that he had. And I want to tell you something. If you want to spring in your spiritual step, if you want joy in your life, 
If you want to know why it is when we come in and those that are right with God can worship with a free heart before him and you wonder, why are these people singing like they're singing? What's the big deal about singing? I want to tell you something. The reason we do that is because there is a heart that is clean before God. Today I want to live right because of the grace that he's bestowed upon me. I want to live right because of the grief that can come when I get into sinful actions. But I want to live right because of God. I want his presence in my life. I want to be close to God. Could I ask you this question here today? Is your life right with God? I don't want you to answer it out loud. I don't even want you to go through confidently and go, oh, yeah, I'm, I'm right with God. Look at me. I'm in church today. You know, we all, all seem to answer that. I, I'm in church today. No, no. There's a lot of churchgoers that are going to walk out the church doors and make some sinful decision. They're going to ignore everything that they've heard. So can I ask you this? Answer to yourself. Are you right with God? You say, preacher, right now I've just been thinking through and I, I, I can't think of anything. Wonderful. Now here's what I'd like you to do in the invitation. I want you to either come to the front or kneel at your seat. I want you to give thanks to the Lord that the way is clear between you and him and ask him to give you the strength to continue to live that way, that you'll live a pure life, a right life before him. But you say, preacher, <laughs> The Holy Spirit's pinpointed something in my life. He's not letting me go. I, I've got this area I need to make right. I've done these things. This sin is compounded to another one, compounded to another one, compounded to another one. And I feel like I'm so away from God. I want to tell you something to hear today. The beauty of the grace of God is that you are one decision away from being right with Him. Amen. That's it. One decision. You say, hey, preacher, you don't understand my life. You don't understand how I've messed things up. I don't have to understand. Read David and all that he did. Read about all these characters in Scripture who did such sinful acts, and yet when they came before God with a contrite and humble spirit and said, oh, God, forgive me, you know what God did? He forgave them. And I'm here to tell you today by way of encouragement that God desires to have a relationship with you. But the decision is with you and you alone. You see, the Bible says, draw nigh to God. And you know what God will do? He'll draw nigh to you. You know what we want sometimes? We say, well, God, you know, if I'm going to get right and I'm not going to live for this world and I'm not going to get involved in these other things, I need you to do something for me. Let me tell you something. God's done all he needs to do for you. Is not every day looking around at his creation such wonder and beauty to say, God's shown himself to me? Is not the fact that I can breathe and walk and see and hear and speak evidence enough that God is powerful and real in your life? God's done all he needs to do. So the decision is you. You take that step. In this invitation here today, now I know a message like this is like, this is a real funny message to preach. 
Because when we call for an invitation, here's what people do when I say heads bowed, eyes closed. They kind of start looking around. You say, is it that obvious? Yes. You can't hide it. I see the squinting. You know? But honestly, we kind of, well, we wonder, oh, look, yeah, he went up for, he went up front. He needs to be up front. No, I'm glad she went up front. I saw what she did. I want to tell you something. Coming up front is not for you. Coming to the altar, what, is, what do we do here? What is our practice? Our practice is an invitation. It's an inviting for you to come and to lay your life before God. Say, God, I'm all yours. I'm all yours. So I'm inviting you to come. Not for me to see, not for others to see, but for you to get right with God. You say, preacher, can I stay in my seat and get right with God? You probably can, but I want to tell you something. Every decision that has ever lasted has always been a public declaration. It's been where other people know. I'm drawing a line in the sand. I'm with God. I want to tell you, go ahead and stay quiet, but you'll probably forget or fail on that decision later. So today, as we have our invitation, I'm going to invite you, and as I ask for heads unbowed and eyes closed, I'm going to ask you, is there some sin in your life that you need to get right with God? You say, preacher, I'm not even saved. I want to tell you, you ought to be one of the first ones down the aisle. You say, I I don't know if I'm going to heaven. I'm trying to live right. Let me tell you, live right all you want, but that's not going to get you to heaven. The only thing that will get you to heaven is faith, personal faith in what Jesus did for you on the cross of Calvary. And so whatever God is touching on your heart today, it could be that you need to get some things right before God. Get it right. Pour it out before God. Nail it to the cross. It could be that you need to be saved. Come and let one of the workers know in the front row, I've come because I need to be saved. We'll take a Bible. We'll show you how to know Jesus Christ as your personal Savior. It could be you need to be baptized or maybe you want to join the church. This would be the time to come and make it known. But my friend, I want to tell you, there's no greater life than living right with Jesus.